Great Expectations is part of the Earth 2 network of podcasts. Episode 12, Whedon and Cassidy's Astonishing X-Men, with Anthony Latch. I can be anything that you want me to be. A punching bag, a piece of string, no, the reminder not to think about the note down in your car. And it's not your fault against this heart, against this heart. Hey, this is Sean. And this is Jerry. And this is another episode of the Great Expectations Podcast. And we are joined by Anthony Latch. It's at Anthony Latch on Twitter. He's one of my favorite people on Twitter, even though I don't know that much about the fandoms that he's into. Yeah. Because I've only, I accidentally, you're going to hate me for this, but I saw Serenity Mm -hmm. and then never went back and watched Firefly. I own it. I own it. Just haven't got around to watch yeah, it. Yeah, you know, um, I got really busy right now, so I might have to leave. Um, it's been fun to be on the podcast, really. It's been great. Well, it's been oh, great man. having you. Thank you. We deserve it. He's a jerk. However, I think that you're like my comic book fandom spiritual animal. Because <laughs> every time that you tweet, I'm like, this dude gets my level of excitement. And you're like the only, everybody else on Twitter is like, fuck this, fuck that. <laughs> Fuck everything. And he's the only one who's like, you want to wait 12 hours in line for Thor? Yeah. Yes. Fist bump. So. Yeah, it's kind of my thing. So I just fist bumped the air for you. I did. <laughs> and wiped his brow. He's excited. I know, I am. I've been waiting for this one from the get-go. So, uh. He's been waiting for this so long that he concentrated all of his energy the last month of podcasts thinking about this. Yeah, yeah that's why I wasn't talking during the last one. <laughs> and, and I was focusing and I was wondering, my cheek. I was wondering, thinking like, oh, when are they going to have me on? But then I see you have superstars like Ryan Stegman, and I'm like, oh, okay, no wonder, no wonder. Yeah, every month, every week, every day is like that. <laughs> superstars pushing it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just call him Sue. Sue. Sue yeah. Star. So yeah, great. So you're having here. So we and I was asked, yes. "What X Men comic book do you want to talk about?" Isn't that right? That's how it goes. That is how, That's it, how goes. it goes. You clearly have listened to the podcast, unlike the rest of our friends. Yes, every episode has been listened, even this last one, uh, the twelve hour long podcast. I think it was. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Listen, I was against that. <laughs> but the, I'm sorry. But the part, Lessons were learned. The best part is that you can just listen. Little by little, and uh, let a couple days go by, and you're caught up. So, I have a program on my computer where it just goes right to the parts where my voice is. Well, so I just cut out all the Jerry stuff. Anyways, um, yeah. So when you had asked me that, I didn't have to think very hard because immediately I knew that it was going to be the astonishing X Men from 2004. And uh, I think it's pretty obvious to us why you chose this, but why don't you let the listeners know about yourself, what would draw you to 
this arc? Well, back in 2004, I had, uh, I'm following Whedon-esque.com, the fan site for Joss Whedon, the writer, director, creator, uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel Firefly, all that mess. And I see a post that says Joss Whedon coming to Wizard World Chicago, and I'm thinking, why is Joss Whedon showing up at a, at a Harry Potter convention with the Wizard World? And because at this time, at this time, I'm about 10 years out from not reading comic books, not really, they, they, they weren't on my mind, but I see that I'm going to go to this Wizard World, which then hit me, oh yeah, Wizard the Magazine, I do remember that. So then it all started making sense. And going there for the the opportunity to meet my god, my creator, Joss Whedon, and have him sign my Buffy poster, I see he's also there with a guy next to him in line who's also photobombing my picture by coughing, artist John Cassidy. And I figured, okay, what are they here for other than Joss being Joss? And I find out that Joss Whedon is a couple issues in at that time, for Astonishing X-Men, his take on the X-Men. And I think, well, I'm at a Comic-Con, there's Joss Whedon, he's writing X-Men, I have some history with the X-Men, which I think we'll get to here, and I figure, what the, hey, I'll buy some comic books for the first time in ten years, and I'm reading them, and my world of uh, the Buffy speak, and all of his television shows are just now being breathed in through these characters that I know from my childhood and my world slowly start exploding which then you, you can imagine how much they explode once uh, the Avengers movie comes out but with the Sashi X-Men Joss Whedon that is where that is what drew me in and brought me back from a 10 year hiatus of not reading comic books yes well you picked the right 10 years to skip let me it tell you it actually it brought me back too is that right Cause I, cause I gave up with the new X-Men stuff with Grant Morrison stuff cause I hated it. Oh. Mm-hmm. And then this was the X-Men book that made all of that stuff seem okay. Uh, which I'll get into when we get into the issues. Cool, cool. Cause everything that I hated about Morrison's run, Whedon made it somewhat seem cool. Awesome. <laughs> and then, and then, so how many times did you see Avengers in the theater? Um, I paid to see it, uh, 22 times. Damn, that makes my nine look like nothing. <laughs> and, and to make your nine look even more like nothing, I saw it four times the first day. And seven times, I think, total for that first weekend, so. In your face! Yeah, I know. I was just warming up then, so. That is awesome. But, well, that's enough Avengers yes, talk yes. on this X-Men podcast. Right, sorry. <laughs> By God, I Not won't bad. have it. Even though I love the Avengers. But we're not talking Avengers. Well, this is, uh, I should let the listeners know, just to give a little uh, history on me. I think I'll do some plugs towards the end, so that way uh, uh, I'll let them like me. And then if they do like me, they can check out some stuff. Because I also, this is probably probably my 116th podcast I've recorded. I like how you have everything down to, like, the perfect number. Like, you know that you saw Avengers 22 times. You're just 160. You're like the Rain Man of <laughs> yeah. comic I was going to be impressed, but that's not a prime number, so oh, yeah. nice try. Well, but anyways, uh, so... <laughs> It'll actually be 117th, because my bet is that somehow Jerry will oh. fuck up the recording of this, <laughs> and we'll have to do it again. Fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. So we bring it back to astonishing number one. So when I picked it up at uh, Wizard World Chicago... 
I believe we had three issues that were out because issue number three, uh, with a great cover of uh, Wolverine, uh, uh, claws out and kind of diagonally coming at the at the audience there, is autographed by John Cassidy because I didn't really know who John Cassidy was, but since he was there next to Jaws, I had to get into another line. And without even reading them, I'm like, well, this guy drew this stuff, so I'm going to have him throw the signature on there. And I think by the by the end of the first night of the con, I think I started reading whatever issues I had. And uh, and that's, you know, what relit my excitement for comic books. And with the X-Men, for me, it had started with with the cartoon. So I actually I was a, a, a fan of uh, the Batman Adam West show for so long until uh, 1993 when I was in third grade and uh, a new kid transferred to school. His name was Brian and we bonded because we each had the same uh, Batman lunchbox and that was, uh, got us to talking and once I was over at his house, I started seeing all of these toys he had of these X-Men characters which I had to ask a question on who all these people were because none of these characters have showed up in any of the Batman uh, TV show episodes. <laughs> and that's when he started to educate me from 1993. Uh, then I started watching the cartoon, of course, and uh, cartoon, toys, and that's basically what launched me into the X-Men. And uh, it was all history from there on out. So. Awesome. Awesome. So, astonishing number one, for me going in, like I said, not really having any history for uh, 10 years of comic book history, I'm opening this up, and what's drawing me to these characters is the fact that they are talking like Joss Whedon. I know Joss has said, too, that if if these characters sound like him, he's not doing his job right, but... You know, with me being as dedicated as I am, you know, you could pick up the humor and the kind of jokes being like, oh, okay, that's a Josh joke. And, and right off the bat, I was, it was, I felt like I was watching an episode of Buffy with, that was being acted out by Wolverine and Kitty Pride and all of those characters. And which brings me to the first little uh, quote that I queued up here because Buffy exists because of, uh, because of Kitty Pride. Uh, Joss Whedon said there were three reasons why he did this comic book. One, he gets to write the X-Men, a comic that he grew up reading. He goes, it's probably the biggest influence on my work there is. Two, I want to personalize things and figure who these characters are to me now. And three, the character Kitty Pride. Basically by saying Kitty Pride is the mother of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So now when I'm seeing Kitty Pride, who is definitely the focus of uh, this entire series, I am just hearing, it's almost like I'm watching Sarah Michelle Gellar play Kitty Pride in a way, if that makes any sense. It does. I'd always heard the uh, Kitty Pride thing that Buffy was based on her, so it was um, good to have that confirmation. Yeah, so here, as I'm flipping through this book and you know experiencing these characters for the first time in ten years in a comic book rather than a just watching the the cartoon, and of course I've seen the movies and everything like that. I, even though I fell out of comic books, I always followed it through media because I I was tired of reading. I'd much rather just let the let the entertainment do the work for me. So, and I guess the first question I have to ask, and you guys are being the experts, if if I will. Yes. Uh, right away, you see uh, Professor Xavier is a jerk when Kitty Pride's going back to the school and runs into the 
uh, uh, she's kind of having flashbacks of things that have happened since she was last there. What is that referring to specifically? I see. I find it interesting that you, because I was wondering. This has always been my go-to. Like, if someone walks into the comic book store that I frequent, and I'm there, they tend to, if anyone asks about the X-Men, just go, "Oh, ask Sean, and he'll recommend something mm-hmm. for you." And when I was rereading this for the show, I started to wonder because this is always my go-to because I think it's great because I think this is 25 issues of a love letter to yes. the X-Men. Mm-hmm. But I wondered. Like, it's almost impossible for, I think, but I, so I'm curious to get your take on it. Like, if you don't have much of a history with the characters, like, do you get the emotional impact of number four? Do you understand why Kitty Pride has such a problem with Emma Frost? And so that's actually kind of a, a good thing that you brought up. So the Professor Xavier is a jerk thing is when, I don't know, when it would have been... Uh, maybe in the 140s, something oh, after Days of Future Past. It's later than that. I it would have been right around the time period that... Uh, I should know what issue that is. It would have been sometime after Uncanny number 167, so I'm going to assume that it's right around there. It was 168. 168. <laughs> was so, it? Yeah. Okay. I actually heard so, Jerry push his glasses up when he said that. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the Professor Xavier is a jerk thing it was uh, a Claremont... And Paul Smith issue it was issue 168, and it was the opening splash page of the issue. Okay. And okay. she's so she's in the middle of a rant about she's being removed from the X Men and sent to the Massachusetts Academy. Right. Which was um, where the Hellions were. Yeah. All right. And so uh, Emma Frost would have been the uh, headmaster there at that point. So pretty much her hatred from. I mean, obviously, later on in this series, she goes on to explain that her version of evil, every time that she thinks of evil, the first person that she thinks of is Emma Frost, because when she was first introduced to the X-Men, she was the one who, you know, kidnapped the X-Men. Yeah, her very first day. Yeah. She, I mean, she's not even an X-Men yet. It's the first day she's met the X-Men. Okay. Emma Frost tries to... I mean, well, she yeah, she forcefully tries to take her. <laughs> yeah. Along with some Mandroid armor, guys. And actually, like, one of the things that I didn't like about the Grant Morrison one previous to this was I didn't like Emma Frost being such a huge part of the X-Men. And it was actually this that kind of slightly turned me around a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't really realize, I didn't, I guess, take the time. She's one of those characters that I feel like I completely understand where Kitty Pride's coming from and her hatred from her. Yeah. Because... She's so, like, Dark Phoenix Saga was one of those books that I just read and read and read. I've got an old trade paperback copy of I mean, I have the single issues, but I have a trade paperback that I always read because my mom gave it to me, and the thing is falling apart. Like, the the glue, the pages are coming out. Like, I just read it every Christmas. I read it. I read it all the time. So just like every other issue you've brought yeah. <laughs> to the recording studio, and yes. it's falling apart when you open it. I love my comics, and I read them, buddy. <laughs> yeah, it's great. They're not supposed to be meant in plastic slabs you bastard and, and sean sean will appreciate this because as i was rereading this series uh this week uh there was uh i forget which issue it was but i did even though it's 10 years old i did have a page start to fall out so you can you can kind of see how much i like the sanishing x-men well loved buddy nice. <laughs> so um 
because Kitty has that hatred for her, it's like, I feel exactly the same way. Like, Emma Frost is so burned into my mind as a bad guy that it just, it's... And I love Generation X, the book where she was ahead of the Massachusetts Academy for the Generation X kids, and she co-ran that school with Sean Cassidy. But for some reason, with her character, I am consistently always waiting for, like, the other shoe to drop. I'm always waiting for her to, like, make that heel turn and just fucking stab him in the back. Mm -hmm. Which, at one point in this series, she does. And I remember as I was reading it, and it was taking three, four months for every issue to come right. out. I'm like, see, motherfuckers, I knew. <laughs> I, told I knew you. it was going to happen. <laughs> yeah, well, they, they prey on that all the time. Yeah. I mean, Whedon's not the only one that's done it. And, uh, and and they use that as a weapon against you. So, like, if you don't trust her, you can't blame yourself. You know, they're setting you up for that. And I have to admit, one of the other things that I really liked about the first issue is... Um, Comics were always just comics to me. Like, I appreciated them because when I started reading, we hadn't quite reached the point CGI-wise in movies that we could do the things that they do now. Like, you watch the Captain America Winter Soldier trailer and you got four fucking helicarriers falling out of the sky. And it's like, that only could have happened in comics back in the day. Mm -hmm. And now that kind of technology's caught up with it, the weird thing that I noticed as I was reading this was this was the first book... This was the first comic that I read that actually felt like I was watching a movie. Oh, cool. Like, I felt like I was, like, it, rereading this post-Avengers and how good Avengers came out, it makes complete sense. Because, like, I look at that and, like, the, the title cards for the thing and how it's paced, like, everything just seems like it's set up either for a television show. And he's got those uh, widescreen layouts. Yeah. Just yeah. everything about this was cinematic. And then, like, that's the best way that I can describe and it. And then do you think that with Jaws coming from that background, because at this time he had only, uh, his first ever comic book was Frey from Dark Horse, which is the Slayer of the Future from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, but uh, dipping into the Astonishing X-Men is his first time uh, dealing with characters that have been uh, pre-created for him. So do you think, you know, most likely that coming from the background of uh, television that he has that uh, cinematic uh, writing style that just, you know, John Cassidy pretty much brought to life and made you feel like you were watching a movie that probably had to be a pretty big influence coming from, you know, a TV writer. Yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think his just his love of the characters really comes through. Because I think... There tends to be, like, a lot of... I mean, there's... Especially now, there's a lot of television writers who are really good at writing comics. I mean, I think one of the best, you know, Marvel events of the past couple of years was Young Avengers Children's Crusade, and that was written by Alan Heinberg, who wrote a bunch of Sex in the City episodes. I only know that because of IMD, you jerks. Not because I've ever watched the show. <laughs> I, I, I've seen it, so... All right, me too. Yeah, I, I box set, so... I, well, look at you. I have no shame, so... I'm changing your Twitter handle to Sassy. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll tweet a picture of it, but uh, it, it's a weird combination. But right now, Silver Surfer's in front of the Sex and the City box set next to the OC and the Gilmore Girls. So that's the kind of life I lead. The OC. That was Sean's gateway to Alan Hyde. No, 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 no. <laughs> me, me, and, me and Anthony are going to we're gonna have a separate podcast where we talk about how cool Luke from Gilmore Girls is. Uh, and, <laughs> and, and, and a teaser for that future podcast, the fact that I dressed as Luke as I met uh, uh, Milo, who plays um, Jess. 
So, I mean, that that's a little teaser for the upcoming Gilmore Girls podcast. But but real, real quick with the old... Well, you've got one listener, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, real, real, quick, real quick, as we uh, close the segment on the OC talk for this podcast, uh, there is a mention of Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men in the OC Season 2 because the Seth Cohen character is very much into comic books and they do a lot of pop culture references. And... He is connecting with another friend that says, hey, uh, what do you think of Whedon's X-Men? And he goes, oh, I have, uh, what do you say? Like, I, I have a couple issues, uh, threefold. And then here he goes, he starts explaining, you know, his comic book nerddom and what Joss is doing with it. But me being an OC fan and then watching them name drop Astonishing X-Men, that's, uh, a little, little cool, uh, pop culture crossover. I like it. <laughs> Yeah. So back to your question asking my uh, impact on, uh, well, I guess as we go through issue one here is basically the the new team is forming, uh, which we eventually see. Uh, it was the promo page, uh, promo cover and all that kind of stuff, and it's one of the last pages of Katie, Beast, uh, Cyclops, Wolverine, and Emma. Uh, basically, the, the the ongoing joke is that talking about uh, getting new tights and, you know, there's gonna be tights. This, this must include tights and this is the kind of humor that I'm picking up from Joss Whedon knowing that, you know, eventually we're gonna see some, uh, pretty cool costumes. What do you guys think? Since you guys are very specific on costumes, uh, what do you think of the astonishing costumes? I love every single one of them. Yeah. Yeah. I do. And man, how much mileage did Marvel get out of that double page spread at the end of that first issue. Yeah. That was on everything. Yeah. And with that reveal, uh, Cyclops says we have to astonish them as they set up this team, as they have, uh, we have some Sentinels, uh, showing up, which we, uh, find out was the Danger Room experiment on the, on the new kids. And we also have, uh, a cure, which they start mentioning. And with this, this is my question to you guys. Has there ever been any tease on, like, a cure? Is this angle, has this been approached in past comics? Not that I'm aware of. I don't think so. I mean, no. Because, uh, I guess, as we experience this book and then eventually we get uh, X3, The Last Stand, uh, which me and Sean are fans of, I think, right? Yes. And uh, Right. You two are. (laughs) Here's a little history, which then brings it back to Sashing X-Men, is the fact that, you know, the whole first arc of Sashing X-Men, the first six issues, is basically the the plot of what's uh, happening in the third X-Men movie. And just a little fun factoid uh, with Joss Whedon, uh, they were going to have Kitty Pride have a much bigger role in the movie, which uh, played by Ellen Page, but Summer Glow is uh Firefly uh go to chick. She had auditioned for Kitty Pride and they haven't had a, a script yet for the movie, but they're getting ready to cast some of these extra new characters for the movie. And Summer Glau had called Joss Whedon after her audition saying, Guess what they were using for the audition pieces that I had to read from and sure enough it was issues of astonishing X Men. <laughs> See that kind of actually bums me out because now I wish that they had just done the first six issues of Astonishing X. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
And then the other little Joss Whedon X-Men factoid is the fact that he had wrote uh, a draft of the first X-Men movie. I'm assuming you two know that. Mm-hmm. And uh, a couple... What's the only that? line that stuck was the worst line. Well, that's just it. Like, when I'm watching it, not knowing that he had written those, uh, two of my favorite lines was simply, uh, uh, one, what, there was two Wolverines at one point, and then... Yeah. And then the the whole dick line, however yeah. that was delivered. Hey, hey, it's me. Prove it. You're a dick. Okay. And I'm like, well, that was hilarious. And then finding out what everyone says is the worst line, but I actually laughed at Storm's toad line. Do you know what happens to a toad when it's struck by lightning? The same thing that happens to everything else. I don't think it was Whedon's writing that I think it was Halle Berry's delivery on that particular line. Yeah, it was the delivery of it, but I'm sitting there, and I, and I still laughed at what it was, and then, you know, years later, finding out that Josh said, uh, you know, those are the things that stayed in there. But but anyways, then uh, the whole Cure thing being the, the setup for the X3 film, you know, it just kind of re, uh, relit my excitement for the comics again, too. And uh, I, I can separate both film and comics, and uh, most people can't, but I can. And uh, so I, I love both of them, and just watching X-Men 3, having Kitty Pride and Beast being my two favorite X-Men characters, I guess I should let the audience know that uh, as far as male and female. I guess I wasn't going for that, but they are my top two favorites. So having them in Astonishing X-Men and having especially Kitty be the, the front runner of this book uh, pretty much keeps it close to my heart. Yeah, I found some of the panels too in the first issue to be talking, going back to the cinematic aspect of it. When, uh, Dr., how would you pronounce it? Rao? Rao? Is discussing Rao. the cure. Yeah. They kind right. of, uh, cut away to the X-Men getting ready, which you really, I just found it to be kind of like an interesting thing, because it was like, you see this panel of an almost, um, uncomfortable kitty kind of getting ready tying her shoes and you see Emma kind of walk back just completely you know powerful and doesn't give a shit and just kind of like out there and she's taking off her shirt getting ready Mm -hmm. and like it's one of those things where it's like you can read it one of two ways either Kitty's just kind of uncomfortable because here's this confident person you know and Kitty looks kind of I don't know meek in the panel but at the same time like I think she's just ridiculously uncomfortable because she does not trust Emma whatsoever. And I think the the panel below it with Hank putting away his glasses, mm-hmm. like I, just all of it leading up to that end, the double-page spread is awesome. Yeah, I agree with that cinematic approach to it where it's just like we're hearing, you know, it's just like a cool little montage that is that is just leading up to, once again, what Jerry said with that very famous uh, uh, splash page that we get there, so... Uh, so yeah, I guess, uh, with issue one, we end with, uh, basically the words from, uh, from her saying, we have found a cure. And me being the person that is outside of the comic book universe at this time, I, the, the comedy was keeping me in this and, uh, the cinematic value of it, I was able to follow along even though I didn't understand, like I had mentioned, uh, the flashback scenes and her remembering, you know, with the, uh, Colossus at the bottom of the stairs there. All of this stuff really doesn't mean anything to me. But 
but with with it being uh, Kitty Pride, once again, me thinking it's you know Buffy Summers in a way. I am uh, I am following it. I am feeling the emotional the emotional tone, even though I don't understand it. I am right there with it. And then finding out that last line, uh, we have found a cure. I'm thinking, well, here's you know that's that that's huge and and what pretty much what they say is like uh the first arc was so acclaimed i guess as uh i don't know what awards all can i don't have those kind of facts or anything like that editor's note astonishing x-men won several awards during the whedon run in 2006 it won the best continuing series award and in 2005 and 2006 john cassidy won for best artist penciler inker or penciler inker team and tied with Frank Quitely in 2005. But, uh, definitely the first, uh, first arc was a pretty huge, uh, milestone in the X-Men comic books. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess I would call that the best X-Men story told. Is that right? That's awesome. Since the Claremont days. I mean, and since I've just read it, um, it's tough because that Claremont stuff is dated a little bit. I think it's still my favorite, but um, the story just every page moves me. You know, it's so freaking good. Just from beginning to end, there there are very few moments that that aren't enjoyable reading. Really, twenty four, mm-hmm. twenty five issues if you count Giant Size, I guess. Yeah, um, it will come. It, it's just it's amazing. It's yeah, and astonishing. That's- Oh, I see what you did Dang, there. Yeah, I, I did that all by myself. And, and I take that as a huge compliment for me. Obviously, my my attachment to this book is the fact that it's Joss Whedon. You guys have obviously, uh, you know, experienced the X Men characters through comic books a lot longer than I have. And you guys have, you know, I guess you guys made a podcast out of it even. <laughs> and so that's so great to like hear that because obviously I, I would say I'm definitely biased because. Here's my favorite creator in any medium, uh, basically, uh, bringing my worlds together. And of course, I'm gonna like it, that's no doubt. So it's great to hear you say something like that. So, in issue number three, I mean, gifted. One of the things that impressed me the most is, um, I think that Cyclops for years took a lot of heat for not, for always kind of being brutal. Everybody always thought that Storm was a better leader, blah, blah, blah. And then one of the things that I found great about this run is the fact that I think that Scott, Joss Whedon had a handle on Scott right from the beginning. And I think there's a particular scene in issue number three where Scott goes and confronts Nick Fury. Yes. And Scott... I think that people take, like, this was the, Joss Whedon was the first person to kind of push, like, Scott had been leading up to this point towards the, the very end of Lobdell's run and the beginning of Grant Morrison's run, but this kind of solidified the fact that Scott has been doing this since he was 15 years old. He's every bit the leader that Captain America is, every bit the tactician that he is, and I think, like, going and basically, like, throwing down the gauntlet with Nick Fury was a great scene to kind of establish them in the broader Marvel universe and kind of hopefully start bringing them into, which I think they've done a much better job in the past 10 years since this. I think this allowed everyone else to see that the X-Men had an equally interesting and prominent role. This was the team, this was the only team of X-Men that was brought into Brian Michael Bendis' um, 2008 event 
House of M. That was was that or is that two thousand six? Two thousand five. Shit. <laughs> yeah, it predated this. I'm getting so old. So uh I found that to be interesting. Just everything about it, like the 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 fight between you know, for years Hank in the comic had just kind of been stuck in this role of when the legacy virus was introduced in Executioner's Song, from that point on, from like 1993 until this point, Hank was nothing more than the guy in the lab. Like, barely went out on missions, he was just the guy in the lab. And one of the things that I appreciated about this run was you saw Hank in the field. There's a fight in issue number three between Logan and Hank, because Logan's pissed that Hank's even considering using the cure. That is just brutal, and it shows what a forceful character Hank is and why he was the strong man on the original team. And for all the complaints about the the feline beast, um, he makes it look so good. Yeah. This is a... Oh, man, he draws the hell out of Beast. He does. And at the very end of that issue, Hank comes to Emma and Scott and explains to them that he thinks that um, they've obviously been using the DNA of a particular mutant that they know to get this cure. And of course, you're led by Cyclops to believe that it's Gene. Emma looks all worried. But uh it is much cooler than that, even for as big of a Gene fan as I am. And as, so as you mentioned that, I'm playing the Great Expectations drinking game from my Dark Phoenix, Phoenix class right now, so. Nice. <laughs> what is the... What is the Great Expectations drinking game? Surely somebody's working on one by I'm now. I'm sure there is. Every time we don't know something about the X-Men. <laughs> Every time it sounds, uh, for, for Lugginger, what was that word again? For Schlugginger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm glad somebody picked up on that yep. around here. Mm-hmm. We got a couple for Schlugginers. Even I didn't remember it and I was there. Yeah. <laughs> So yeah, so, uh, that brings us to issue number four. The heartbreaker of heartbreakers. Oh, yeah. I just tried to explain this to my wife before we recorded the show, and I couldn't get through it. I had to stop and walk away. <laughs> I, and I, like the thing is too is like, it's interesting to get both perspectives on it on the fact that you really didn't have that much of a history with Colossus, and I find that. Well, we should probably get to, obviously we've spoiled who it is and everyone's already read this, so they know who it is, yeah. but Kitty is basically tasked with the, you've got to get down there and find this particular person, we're going to run through here and take care of business. So Kitty's going down, 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 all the way to the very basement of this place. She's got guards following her, and there's this great panel towards the end of issue number four, where the guards shoot at Kitty, and she's phased. You see the bullet go through her. And you hear this tiny cling go off. And you turn the page, and there's the first time you've seen Colossus since 2000. So it's been a couple of years. And I think probably I have a favorite panel from this series, but it's so close to this, like, page. Like, I have one particular panel in mind that's at the end of the series, Mm -hmm. just because of my personal beliefs in the books. But this page is brilliant. Like Kitty, Kitty's standing there just completely shocked. Bullets are going through her. They're bouncing off of Colossus. Her face doesn't change throughout the panels, but you see Peter run through her. 
And the only thing she does, you see the shadow of Colossus lifting up one of the guards behind her. And Kitty's just got this stunned look on her face as she's holding her heart. And Colossus just goes nuts. I mean, he's bashing people into walls, chasing them down, throwing them off the ledges. He looks insane. And Kitty's screaming stop at him. And finally, she gets him to stop. He turns back into his human form, drops to his knees, and in one of the saddest, probably next to Uncanny X-Force number 25, the saddest panel I've ever seen in comics, he grabs onto her. I mean, and the the way that it's done is just like Kitty... I hate to use the word frail, because Kitty is not frail by any stretch of the imagination. Petite. Yes, she's petite. And she's just there, and he's on his knees, this big hulking dude, and he's just got this hug where he's basically like... If he could, he would, like, melt into her. Like, that's how sad he is. And he's not excited to see her. He just looks at her and asks, am I finally dead? And it is one of the saddest things I've ever seen in any form of entertainment. Yeah. And as that image happens, we definitely end on the very last page of the comic book with Dave Mira... Uh, shirtless. It, it, it is an issue that touched my heart by seeing the milk mustache. Got me. Yeah. I gotta admit, if there was ever a, uh, an advertisement to buy this in the omnibus or trade or hardcover, it's having that emotional moment wrecked by, <laughs> by I got milk ad. By shirtless oh, miracle maker Dave Miro. When you guys read comics, do you even notice the ads? I mean, the only way I notice them is that they annoy me because I, I gotta flip through them to get to the next page. But like, I don't. Oh, Jerry, I just fold my book like this. No, I don't. <laughs> That's number four. What are you doing? And uh, to to answer that, uh, when Buffy the Vampire Slayer ended, and it eventually picked up in comic books uh, written by Joss Whedon, he overlooks every issue up until this day. And season uh, eight of the show was represented in comic books. So as I'm getting excited, I'm treating it as if I'm sitting down to watch another new episode of Buffy. And once I get to those ads that are in the book, I treated those as my commercial breaks. And that's where, you know, go go refill the beverage and get your snacks all in order and reflect on what just happened. Because when you turn the page, you're back, commercial's over, and here you go. So actually, since... Since Buffy is translated into comic book form, I've actually treated a lot of ads like that. Be like, oh, commercial break, kind of recollect my thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Sean had originally asked me uh, what my feelings were, uh, knowing that I didn't have that emotional attachment to uh, these characters since I haven't been reading comic books in 10 years. And as you had mentioned, the page where she uh, faces and the bullet goes through, we got the cling. I'm thinking, okay, what the heck is happening? Turn, we see Colossus, and my first thought is, hey, I know who this guy is. That's awesome. I know who Colossus is. I don't have the emotional attachment on, on the importance of him being there, but as I see that, as, as Sean had said, how her face stayed the same for one, two, three panels that we can see, uh, the front, front side of her face, and, uh, uh, all of this is happening, even though I don't have that emotional attachment. I'm feeling it, but I don't know why I'm feeling it, because Joss has done that kind of storytelling in his television shows, and I definitely know where uh, where the emotion is 
uh, why it's happening or where it's coming from. And I'm just excited to figure out, you know, why is this important to me and to the readers? And yeah. I think one of the reasons why it gets to me more so than I think some of the other deaths slash resurrections in the X-Men comics is I think out of that giant size crew, I think that Colossus was the, Kurt had nowhere else to go. You know, um, Wolverine, I think just wanted to get out of Canada. (laughs) Sunfire didn't want to be there. Warpath was bound for death. (laughs) And I felt like Colossus was the one who felt like it was the honorable thing to do to go and like that he was given this gift and he didn't fully understand it. And so like his sacrifice and how he died in Uncanny X-Men and then this moment, I think that, that out of every single X-Men character, I think that Colossus is the most tortured. He doesn't... I don't think that he wants to be an X-Men, but I think that he knows that he has to be, that they're his extended family, and now especially since, at this point in the book, his brother Mikhail had committed suicide years previous to this. His sister had been completely... She died, she'd been resurrected... She has no soul. There's all sorts of stuff going on with her. I just think that Colossus is one of the most tragic of the X-Men. He, he sided with Magneto for a time period. Like, it was just... So, in issue number five, there's another really touching scene where kind of Cassidy nails it just as much as Whedon does, where Kitty's basically explaining, like, if you're a scrawl, if this is some type of trick, if this is a telepathic mind game, like, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to jam my hand in your head and I'm going to solidify and you're going to be done. And she says, Peter Rasputin died and I know this because I carried his ashes to Russia and I scattered them myself. And there's this moment where Colossus looks at her like he's a little boy. Like he's just... This woman that's loved him since she was a kid just looks at him and says, You did... And he looks down and he looks up and he says, thank you. And it's like the most sincere Russian farm boy, nice, like, (laughs) I just want to hug the dude in these panels. It's awesome. Like, so badass. And he goes through what happened to him. While you're (laughs) collecting your thoughts, uh, just a a moment to give Laura Martin some props for the coloring work that she did on this series. I think she colored every issue. And um, she, she put some textures on his His figure work um, is... There's a lot of open line work on there with, with not a ton of texture put on in some of the panels. And she does just beautiful work. And, I mean, I don't see her name anymore. I, I don't know what she's doing these days. And maybe she's still on books that I don't know about. But here in the mid-2000s, if there was a big book at Marvel, she was on it. And the work she did, so good, especially in this astonishing Yeah, movie. I want to say her name has showed up on some other Whedon non-X-Men projects. Uh, I'd have to research and confirm that, but, uh, yeah. She did a lot of events. She did, like, Secret Invasion, so on and so forth. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And towards the end of the book, I love the panels where, where Ord's going after the X-Men. 
And you see the stunned look on everyone, stunned look on everyone's face. Yes. Oh my god. It's just like you keep on bringing up the fact that there was comedy, and it's like it's so every just everything about this run is perfect. Like it is a giant. Like I'm happy that you got as much out of it as you did, Anthony, because I think that it's really. Like, when Jerry said that it probably, since the Claremont and Burn stuff, as much as I love the stuff that I grew up with, it does not compare to this. Like, every single, every other page has, like, a beautiful fan service moment. Yeah. Like, just the look on Colossus, or Wolverine's face when he sees Colossus. This is the best. <laughs> yeah, that's quite the compliment, too, because I'm a little biased when it comes to, uh, yeah, you know, I love it because it's Joss Whedon, so it's great that, you know, you guys that have the longer history with the actual characters, uh, that's, that's great to hear that, uh, that you guys feel that same exact way, so. Yeah, it, if, this is the, the very best getting the band back together story that could ever be. Yeah. I mean, they're just a, a storm and a nightcrawler short. I think, of, of this being the perfect book. Oh, man. <laughs> if Nightcrawler was in this book, I'd be dead. He does show up in the giant sizes, That's right? That's true, but not enough. Too late. Yeah. But, um, I don't know. I think I remember reading an interview with him when this was coming out that he was trying to focus on characters. Like, he only wanted guys in the team whose powers made more sense to him. Um, like as far as like something that could maybe happen in the real world. So like nobody who could fly, like he didn't want any flyers on the team. And I guess, uh, teleportation maybe didn't make the cut, but it seems like Kurt would be the perfect Whedon character. I don't know. It's too bad he didn't, he didn't take him on, but that probably would have made the group too big too. This, everybody has, there's, there's room for everybody to have their moment. Yeah. No, and that's so, the thing too is don't you're change exactly a thing, right. Like I guess I it's hard to pick like a perfect X-Men team and it's got to be because you need to like there's maybe it's the perfect team mixed with the perfect writing, but it's like everyone does have their purpose here mm-hmm. and I appreciate that that maybe not everyone I maybe not every one of these was Whedon's favorite characters. Maybe he knew that he might have to struggle to write one of them to get it to work the way that it did, for them to really truly seem like a superhero team. The X-Men had just been so lost for a while. Like, There's this thread on the 11 O'Clock's forum where they do a panel a day of X-Men. It's this really great thread there. But it's been brutal for the past couple weeks because they've gotten into the really dark time of the X-Men. And just... I mean, this is going to be the probably the weirdest podcast ever because it's just us basically jerking Joss Whedon and John Cassidy <laughs> off. But just another day in paradise. <sighs> well, at the risk uh, at 19 minutes here of uh, getting distracted again, I just want to say that I am a John Cassidy defender. You are, and that he's earned the right to slack off a little bit now. His art still looks good. Be nice to him. Love him for these 25 issues that he's given us. And don't give him shit for what he's doing in Uncanny X-Men. Uncanny or whatever. Uncanny Which Avengers. is also awesome. Yeah. yeah, I think he said X-Men because there's a filter on the podcast that every time... Uh, 
Yes. <laughs> or just uttered it somehow. Kind of. You found out about that, huh? We're going to have to take care of you now. Uh, was, but I love that in issue number six, when, when Ord's getting away, you have that great moment of just Colossus looking at Logan, and he goes, he doesn't get away. And then you turn it, and it's a double-page spread of the largest fastball special I've ever seen. <laughs> I think Midtown Comics was using this yeah. as their on their ads for a long time. They might still use that. The Wolverine flying. Oh, I love the oh way he God. draws Wolverine. And he punches through the window of the plane that Ord's on, and he sticks... Just jams his hand right into his mouth. <laughs> oh. Yeah, what does he say? Land or I pop him? He says, you bite, I'll heal. I pop, you won't That's right. land. <laughs> and talking about like big kind of action moments, I guess a uh, question for you guys is, in this one, throughout the whole series, we see so much Kitty Pride uh, getting very... Uh, how should I word this? Getting very very uh, close to murder on so many levels when it comes to her facing abilities by you know whether it's like a, a like a rod through someone's head or holding you know Emma through the the rocks oh. she has so many moments where she is holding these people's lives uh and things for me I'm witnessing this I'm like wow this is pretty badass for you guys and she had a lot of history with just being like pretty much just off her nut and just ready to get information and I think that this is interesting because she had kind of stepped away after Peter died she did go to Russia um, to scatter his ashes and kind of took some time away from the X-Men and I know that in the beginning arc of Grant Morrison's new X-Men run when the Sentinel destroys Genosha and commits genocide I believe that her father was on Genosha, mm-hmm. and I think that that kind of pushed her over the edge. I think the double whammy of losing the love of her life and her father basically right around the same time kind of pushed her to a point where it was like uh, uh, almost this is like a precursor to the Cyclops that we've got now who's like anti-genocide you know, or not anti-genocide <laughs> um, anti-his people getting wiped out so he's kind of willing to do anything. I think at this point you have a Kitty, who is emotionally wrecked, who is also completely untrusting of the fact that Emma's there, mm-hmm. is convinced that she is somehow mentally mind-fucking Cyclops into doing her bidding. So she's just, I think, at the point where I finally got this guy back that I truly care about, and nothing's going to get in the way of us fixing this and there being some, like, honest-to-God true happiness at the end of this, which makes the end of the run, unfortunately... Ridiculously hard. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to try to... uh... But before you do, uh, to fully answer the question, I don't believe that she would have gone through with it in any of those situations, except for the one that was only in her mind with Peter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where she... There's... That... To me, there there were three... We've got lots of time. There were three moments... Uh, that really ripped my heart out. The one with Peter being found at the beginning and the one at the end, which I, I don't know if we're going to discuss. I don't know if we want to spoil it just in case yeah. nobody, there there's, might be somebody out there. We'll, so we'll save it for the end and then let people decide if they want to shut it off. And, and yeah, and just but, to let you know. But then in the yeah. middle, um, the whole 
mind fuck that Emma does on Kitty, uh, where she threatens Colossus by putting a an axe handle through his head and telling him that she's gonna let go. Um, that was so sad. <laughs> as a as a parent now, yeah. I, I read it differently, I guess, or it affected me more. But um, God, you know, it's it's like a three page sequence, but it it is so heart wrecking to read, you know, and, and uh, you know, none of it happened, but it, in her in her head and in her heart, it happened and it's still happening. And uh, man, it just tore me up inside reading that. And to uh, back Sean up earlier when he had mentioned about uh, Kitty being gone after Colossus' death and a uh, couple more quotes from Joss Whedon saying how the fact that he got to use her, that sealed the deal for this comic book series, knowing that, like, okay, Kitty's open to him to put in the story. You know, that gives him a reason. And he said that uh, just being able to bring back Kitty Pride to give Kitty a journey is uh he, he didn't feel that there'd ever have another moment like that than now and that kinda was a you know, I think probably helped the story too with his love for Katie and with everyone else like not really seeing her for a long time and then just kinda bringing her on the front line and having her have these moments and yeah. A couple of things that we've kind of glossed over in the overall Joss Whedon Love Fest here is uh he introduced some actually really great characters that I wish were around more. Um I really like Agent Abigail Brand. Yes. Yes. Um and uh I don't think anybody's written her the way he has. No. And another one that um every few um I I'd say every decade we get a new um for lack of a better term, Kitty Pride. And the idea of Wolverine kind of taking a younger student under his wing. Mm-hmm. Um, we had Kitty Pride, then you had Jubilee, and uh, surprisingly, I grew incredibly attached to Armor. Armor is awesome. Yes. Yeah, I, I don't think it's surprising. She's awesome. Yeah, and she gets her own little character arc. I wish that we that, that like it's one of the things where I'm I'll get into it at a different time because this really has nothing to do with this particular thing. But one of the mutants that I have not really cared for in the past few years has been Hope, yeah. mostly because she's just been jammed down our throat as though she's the savior of everything, and uh, it's kind of a bummer because characters like Armor kind of get pushed to the side and mm-hmm. we don't really see her anymore. Um, I like the use of like Elixir in this, who is brought in in the second volume of New Mutants and uh, New X Men Academy X. And just like a lot of the kids were used to a really good effect. Like the I I, I wasn't my problem, which Jerry and I will get into on a different podcast when we actually discuss New X Men. Mm-hmm. Um, was I think when I first read New X Men, it was the first time that I'd ever been reading long enough for something that I cared about to be retconned. Hmm. Like, it was the first time I ever experienced a retcon, and so to me, it, like, it was such a seismic shift in the book, like, all of a sudden, Xavier had a twin that he, like, killed in the womb, and, like, it was just so bizarre and kind of out there, and especially with, like, what I had going on in my life in that time period it just wasn't what i wanted in books at the time technically a retcon though i mean it's just an untold thing right right? 
but it was like one of, but not understanding. I don't know. I, maybe I'm explaining it wrong, but it was just such a shift in the book that it just wasn't the turning him into the creepy uncle. Yeah, it was like where they started down the path, which we'll get into in the next arc of Astonishing X-Men, where like Xavier became the let's make him the whipping boy and bad guy for the next ten years. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you was, ever check out the uh, speaking of armor the that X-Men anime? Yeah, it was all right. I'm not she the, I'm, she was featured in that, though, yeah. wasn't she? Yeah. So I mean, if if there are other armor fans out there that yeah. that are itching for a fix of armor, go find that that really weird, quirky X Men anime. That was probably the best of those anime yeah. cartoons oh, that they absolutely. did. I, I think. Now, I guess my point of bringing up the new X Men thing is the fact that like astonish like the school didn't feel right in New X Men. You know, there just seemed to be a lot of like. Um, just all of a sudden there were a billion mutants and it was like yeah. I don't as shitty as this might sound it's like I don't want to read about you know squid face or whatever you know I want my I, mutants it's so to weird have. to me hearing you say that because I love to Wolverine me, and the X-Men that, that is Wolverine and the X-Men no, 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 I know. it's the same thing I know to me and to me I would take I would take new X-Men over Wolverine and the X-Men but I think, like, I think the difference for me, <laughs> poor Anne. <laughs> we'll get back on uh, Astonishing yeah, X-Men yeah, in a second. I think the, di- yeah. the difference between New X-Men and Wolverine and the X-Men is New X-Men was written as though it was some type of message that was being, like, jammed down my throat. Okay? Where Wolverine and the X-Men is just like, this is fun. And it's light. And it's entertaining. And it just seemed like Morrison's agenda was like, not every... X-Men is going to be as good looking. Like, those are the problems that they're facing. And I understood, it was like a social agenda, and I get it. But we'd already had so many years of, like, the legacy virus and the, the Martin Luther King, Malcolm X analogy that it just seemed like another thing. And it was, like, Morrison's take on it more so than the natural preser- progression of the book. All right, back on track. Okay. So, um, we get a lot more of the school aspect of it in the second arc. Um, I did, there's... I don't have any issues with anything that Whedon did. However, one of the missteps for me as a fan was um, Danger. Okay. You don't like Danger. Because... Because it makes Professor X look like a bad guy. Yeah. And I understand it, but it's like one of those things where like... Uh, it's like all of a sudden finding out that like this is this is more of a retcon than yeah but like than Cassandra Nova it makes me feel like I just as I'm reading this okay it makes me feel like someone just unleashed a news article on me that's like hey by the way did you know that that nice guy Mr. Rogers actually kept some kids trapped in the basement for the show (laughs) like that's a little bit what it felt like yeah well I think it's intended to feel that way I know Anthony, do you have any secret quotes about what he intended with Danger? Um, yes, he said, I'm doing this mostly to piss off Sean and make it easy. <laughs> that was said in 2005 at the World Boston on a Saturday. Well, that's good. Um, I'll, have to, I'll have to ask him about that if I ever get the opportunity to meet him. Well, I, I can I can hook you guys up if you want. Yeah, we're pretty tight. Okay. Uh, Sweet. I have to admit, though, I do think that the reason why it was done that way was to push 
Cyclops into the position he is now. So on one hand, it's like I, I, I felt bad because it was like learning out, which I guess I did when I was growing up, learn out that your dad's like a piece of shit, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Like you have this idea that he's all great and everything. All the Professor Xavier stories that I grew up with as a kid, like he wasn't that bad of a guy. Mm-hmm. Then you go back and you read the Stan Lee stuff and he's a creeper eyeball and a gene. <laughs> and then you find out that he lacks danger up, you know? Kind of a bummer. Yeah, well, I mean... They kind of, he kind of explains his agenda through Emma in that really interesting sequence where she breaks Scott down and she helps him figure out who he really is, um, while at the same time <laughs> leaving him catatonic. But, uh, yeah, that's all explained there. And uh, yeah, it works for me. I mean, I would have preferred that that Professor X not be a jerk, but it's an interesting story. Now, with everything that's happened recently in the X-Books and the Schism, and uh, having spent the past couple years like in that world of reading new comics, one of the so there are so many fucking great moments in this book. Like every, I'm telling you, every single issue of this 25-issue run, there is a moment where you will want to like high-five someone while you're reading it. Because in issue number eight, when they unleash that, like, half-dead sentinel, and it's crawling. Yes. Okay? And He's, Cyclops just Cassidy takes, was born to draw fuck, sentinels, yes. by the way. And Cyclops just takes the visor off as he says, I want this thing off my lawn, and one of the panels is just red, and then as he's putting it back on, Cyclops, or Wolverine and Colossus are behind him, and they both have these looks of just utter shock on their faces. And Logan says, every now and then, Summers, I remember why you're still in charge. And that panel is so great because you just see, like, the grass is gone and it's just like the earth has been pushed back. All the trees are, like, bent and destroyed and the sentinel's just blown to hell. So awesome. And uh, to back you guys up with talking about just, like, with all the kids and armor and all that stuff, that Joss comes from that history of... uh, of writing so many characters and being like the, it can balance out a full cast. And you had to mention, you know, this is like, the, with, with the team forming, that this is probably like the best uh, example of, you know, getting the team back together. And all of Joss Whedon's work through his television shows, each and every show is about a huge ensemble cast, which obviously gave him enough credit to uh, direct that A word movie that we can't say on uh, right <laughs> expectations. But, uh, X-Men? Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I saw that, uh, X-Men movie 22 times in theater. Um, <laughs> so writing with all these kids, cause we definitely get that in the danger arc, uh, the danger room storyline and all that stuff. The, the fact that he has written so many young kids and, and he's able to balance, you know, getting that emotion in there of just, feeling the reactions of some of these kids that you've never seen before, mostly because, you know, Joss created them for this uh, story. And I think it's pretty easy to, uh, to uh, agree and feel their, uh, feel their pain, even though you've only known them for, you know, like one panel. And right. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, no, don't let anything bad happen to that guy. I've never met before. Yeah, exactly. Like he, he just makes you, pulls it off, makes you want to uh, care about these people. And, and there's many shows and comic books and 
movies involving characters that I don't care what happens to them, but I guess when it comes to Whedon breathing life into all these characters, uh, new and old, I'm basically in that emotion, I'm on that emotional ride all the way through, so. So just to, to nutshell it for anyone who might not have read these, the, the second arc is the danger room becomes sentient. Sentient? Sentient. The danger room becomes sentient. Drinking game. And, uh, decides to use the kids at school as a weapon of revenge on Professor X and to lure him back so that it can ultimately kill him. I have to admit, though, as much as I didn't like the idea of them turning him into to jerk that locked up Danger, he has some really great moments in this arc. He does. The he Norman shows he's Bates a badass. switcheroo. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He drives a truck through her. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's awesome. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of that throughout the whole uh uh, series of this where there are a lot of those kind of switcheroo moments like with that and just that, that's what I love like he's got that storytelling uh, pacing that uh, you know you're, you're you're leading to believe one thing and then you know a couple issues down the road it'll pay off and you know once again I'll kind of not just 100% spoil it but you know having like there's a mole throughout the series and just like just things like that 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 was a cool reveal yeah and, and, uh, working first, yeah. And for those listening, uh, they won't see the spoiler because you guys can see the video of, uh, <laughs> of the spoiler right there. But stay off Twitter if you don't want to be spoiled. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> so like, it's, it's moments like that that he's, he's, uh, he's built to structure a story out for 22 episodes, so to say, for a, a normal season. So he knows that, okay, I can tease this and I can have it pay off, you know, 18, 18 episodes down the road. I think he's definitely using that knowing. So I, I think originally he was only going to do 12, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. And then, and then the success, I'm assuming, pretty much said, okay, let's do another year of it or another year's <laughs> worth, rather. <laughs> right. Um but uh what did we end up with? Four years to get these twenty four out or three? It took a while. Yeah, yeah. Editors note the first issue of Astonishing X Men released on May thirtieth of two thousand four. And the final issue in the run, Giant Size Astonishing X Men number one, released exactly four years later on June first, two thousand eight. And uh and he had the same thing too with his uh Frey comic book and I mean, I don't, I don't know the personal lives of, uh, other creators and their commitments and stuff, but there was one time and actually at this point that Joss was running Buffy, Angel, Firefly all at the same time and, and being, you know, the showrunner of all that stuff. And I think that, you know, obviously contributes to having a lot on his plate, but. Yeah, we know what was paying his bills too. It wasn't comics. Yeah. yeah. And obviously with him knowing, okay, now we're signed on for, you know, what ends up being 25 total issues, he knows that, okay, I can have this mole thing, which was teased pretty early on, and then you just kind of completely forget about it. It's not really focused then, you know, issues down the road, then it just happens just like that, and it's just, he, he has the perfect pacing and knowing that he can do 25 issues. He can do, he can say everything that he needs to say and, I think you both would probably agree that by the end of it, pretty damn satisfied with what he had to say. Yeah. No, I mean, 
You get a great moment in issue 12 where Kitty gets to say bub. (laughs) Oh, and another great callback. Anthony, I don't know if you... Why do I always want to say something right when I have to refresh it? Did you catch the callback to Wolverine from um, X-Men 132 where he's in the sewer and and he pops his claws and he says, now it's my turn? Yeah. Oh, And then Kitty does the same thing? For Are you saying for uh, a Serenity type of... No, in, in the Dark Phoenix saga, there's an issue where Wolverine gets taken down by the... Everybody gets taken down by the Hellfire Club, okay. and Harry Leland uses his power to push Logan through the floors, and he winds up in the sewers. And he pops up, pops his claws, and he says, you've had your shot, now it's my turn. And it's a, a really famous John Byrne page. Yeah. And there's a homage to it here, but instead of it being Logan that does it, it's Kitty. I guess those are those moments, I guess, having those flashbacks and kind of inside jokes, something that went over my head for that one there. But there's definitely several things in the storytelling that gets me kind of grinning just because I, I think it's, it's almost like a personal nod to me and some, sometimes when I'm yeah, hearing these words and you guys probably yeah. felt that, I'm assuming. Well, it's, I think it's cool that he threw in some Easter eggs for, for Joss fans, yeah, you know, not not necessarily Marvel fans, but fans of his. Like he's given them something too, yeah. yeah. Because I'm sure there were plenty like you who who yeah. went to check that out because they love everything he does. Yeah, yeah. I love the fact that when the danger room isn't working anymore because danger's been removed from it, it's just a room, and the kids are in there, and Logan's talking to him about how he's going to train him to fight, and they're like, "Well, what's the danger in here? There's <laughs> nothing going on." And all of a sudden he just has lights and it goes dark and you see the <laughs> He <laughs> shuts the lights off. the crap out of the kids. Oh, man. He's so mean. And then uh Jerry's favorite page of the entire book was when uh Kitty Pride orgasms through the floor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with the, the sexuality of their relationship because I still, like, she's a grown woman at this point. But you still imagine. But she falls in love with Peter when she's like 13 yeah. years old. Yeah. And she's, and he's a man of the world at this point. He's seen, uh, a Savage's Special Island. So, um, <laughs> you know, he's, he's been around the block a couple times and, and she's, kind of wanting to show off her moves that she's still developing, and that always freaked me out. Yeah. And uh, so, even though she's a grown woman, it's still it's still weird, yeah. but I'm I'm happy that they're back together at this point. And I, I appreciate the comedic aspect of that orgasmic phase when, uh, <laughs> basically because there's that one random mutant who's, like, sitting on the couch eating popcorn or something, and he, <laughs> he doesn't say I don't think he says anything, and he just sits there, and it just happens in front of him. But, yeah, that was... Uh, there was so much phasing comedy, even right from that first issue of her phasing into the middle of that big meeting, you know, it just, uh, that's what I appreciated too, that, that comedy, those comedy punches that Joss is very good at, and, uh, and definitely got to see that in, every character had their, had their, uh, comedic moment. Mm-hmm. You, you had said they each had, uh, a moment to shine as far as being a group and there really wasn't like a weak link of the group. They all had their heroic moment and that's what he, he knows, for, that's what he's so good with the ensemble that everybody, they're on the team because they do have a purpose. They're not just there just to take along for the ride. There, there is a reason for every single person that, uh, shows up on that team. So one of the things I really respect, respect about the way he's treated the book is that 
he doesn't fall into the trap that other writers fall into where to move the story along all of a sudden they suck. Yeah. They can't do their jobs right. They're stupid. They're they're petty, uh jealousy gets in the way of them doing their job or some stupid crap like that. Yeah. You know, that gets them in trouble and then all of a sudden they're awesome again and they get out of it. They're badass from beginning to yeah, end. No. And sometimes the bad guys are just better. You know, and or they catch them unprepared. But, you know, they, they can't see the troubles that are coming, coming. There, There's just no way they could have anticipated any of it. So, uh, the, like, these are legitimate threats. It's not just some concoction that they came up with to get a book out that month. Yeah. I, I love that. You know, yeah. these guys are really awesome superheroes. Every single one of them, and he shows you why in every issue. They all get a moment to do something awesome. And and mention the superheroes and the reason for them, you know, wanting to be a presence in the world to to help save the world. I don't remember what issue it was, but uh, when they go to uh, what Manhattan to fight the big, you know, green lizard <laughs> guy. Yeah. yeah. And as I look at that, I'm thinking like, oh, that looks like you know the cover of the Fantastic Four. Uh, yeah issue and stuff and then it's not a page later when Fantastic Four rolls in and then you know they say like like oh isn't this like a Fantastic Four type or this is our gig or something like that and yeah. that's hey, yeah, that kind of heroic moments. So. Art note here in that scene the thing shows up and he draws a really cool looking thing Yeah, but the Fantastic Four shows up again in giant size number one yes. and oh my god that is the ugliest thing I have ever seen. I don't know what happened between those two issues, but he completely forgot how to draw him. <laughs> or he had some help. You know, it's it's possible somebody was ghost drawing some of those pages. I don't know, but... Whew. Also, I think this was one of the things that when I first read this was like the most confusing to me, but it turned out to be one of my favorite parts of the entire story. Is uh, Towards the end of issue number 14... When Emma's doing all the mind games on him, she actually goes into Scott's head, and you see the moment where he decides in the hospital slash orphanage that, like, he can't control his powers. Like, you figure out that it's, like, something that he's, like, he put that crippling pressure upon himself. It, it's not a physical ailment, it's a mental ailment. Yeah. And we get one of my favorite panels of all time, because you finally get to see Wolverine relax. And eat cereal like a normal <laughs> human being. Well, not That's... not completely normal because he's spilling his milk all over the place. Yeah, true. Like it completes. So when I read that, I thought the next panel, if we stayed with him after this little talk that he has with Peter, he gets up and leaves the room. Does he wipe up the milk? Probably not. You're writing Wolverine. Does your Wolverine wipe <laughs> up the milk before he leaves? Listeners, please tweet your answer to at gxpod. We want to know how clean you think Wolverine is. You know what? I want an answer, seriously. Yes, he does. How about you, Anthony? Uh, I'll say yes as well. I think because... I don't think he does. No, come on. <laughs> I'm serious, you I don't see, think he does. This is the thing that I always he hate. Wants, so He'd many. make a kid do it. No, because the this is what always drives me nuts. Like They did a... Um, back in like 94, 95, they did this almost out of continuity original X-Men. They tracked down Sabretooth issue. It had like a chromium cover... And they wound up killing Sabretooth at the very end of the issue. Like, Sabretooth dies. And so it was kind of this slightly off-kilter, like, not totally in continuity because he dies, but he eventually comes back. 
And one of the things that I found really interesting in that storyline was they track down Sabretooth's apartment, and they go to it, and it's clean. Like, it's just everything is in its place. Everything's perfect about this thing. And so uh, I think just because of the way, like, you've got to figure out that, like, Logan was a military man. He was a samurai. There was. I just think that, like, honestly, I think the only belongings that Logan has is probably, like, a couple sets of clothes, a raggedy old picture of Gene that he crumbled up when he was in the Savage episode. Yeah. Call back to last episode. What a what breaker! Up? <laughs> <laughs> and he's got that damn samurai sword. Yeah. Like, and I think that's it. So his I think, bike. Did you say his bike? Yeah, his bike. So I think the stuff that he does it. have, because he's been alive for so long, is probably so very important to him that he's probably like a very tidy like sometimes the the most fucking screwed up people I've ever met in my entire life like you yeah like you came over to my house the first time and you were like holy shit this guy is clean everything is in its right place you know why yeah cause my head is a disaster Jerry well I guess that makes sense I don't know um, I, I should add that uh, one item, one item that you I'm surprised you guys have been glossed over that Wolverine would have in his possessions um, is clearly a Dave Mira poster. Uh, <laughs> also crumpled up like Gene. <laughs> With a glory hole, of course. <laughs> no! Man. No! Did you guys ever read the Punisher issue with the Wolverine crossover where Punisher implied that Wolverine was gay at the end? No. Yeah. Did Fraction write it? Uh, I forget who writes it, but then in the at the other flip side of it, uh, to get revenge, Wolverine found evidence of Punisher being like a boy child molester or something like that. That really happened. And I might have the facts wrong. That is a total <laughs> digression. Sorry. If, this is what we're known for, though. If I never read it, it didn't happen. It's right <laughs> at the end of Wolverine Volume 1. Or at the, right at the beginning of Volume 2, but I think right at the end, like 185, yeah. somewhere around there. Check it out. We're going for an editor's note record here today. This Punisher issue that I mentioned was from Volume 5. It was issue 17, written by Garth Ennis and drawn by Derek Robertson. And they have the Punisher shoot Logan's nuts off and then have the Punisher drive over him with a steamroller. And in the following year, Frank Thierry and Terry Dodson get their revenge for Wolverine in Wolverine Volume 2, number 186, by having Wolverine imply that the Punisher is gay. So that's the whole story, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Number 15 has the 132 homage. Okay. The end of it. The end of issue 15. Okay. And then we start... uh, this is where it all starts to kind of tie together towards the end of the third arc. Where you realize arc. that the, everything that's going on is all related. Yes, because you have, um, we haven't, we've kind of glossed over all the sword stuff, but they're, they've got Ord in their, uh, possession and he, uh, breaks out with the help of danger. And you get a great. Oh, we should mention that Ord is on Earth for the reason of needing to kill some mutant who is destined to destroy his home planet. The breaker of worlds. The breaker of worlds, right. So he's he's come to Earth, and he's the one that stirs up all the trouble in the first arc. Okay, go ahead. Yes. I do enjoy 
in Emma's and Cassandra Nova's mind game issues, the uh, the fancy Wolverine, <laughs> the scared, scared, dainty Wolverine. Yes, so this awesome. is some of the funniest stuff ever. I showed my daughter the cover to issue seventeen. Seventeen, yes. And yeah. uh, she was not impressed. I just <laughs> crack up every time I look at it. She's like, "Nothing's happening." It's when he's sitting on the floor, like on his stomach, with his hands up <laughs> paper and his feet, dolls. and he's got the paper dolls. <laughs> so awesome. Yeah. This, and that's what he would have turned out like. Yeah. If uh, if it hadn't been for the whole massacre in his house. Yep. See, and it's good to hear you guys react that way too, because once again, I'm reading it, knowing like, oh, this funny Joss Whedon stuff going on, taking a character that I pretty much just know as a you know a hard badass, basically. So it's good to hear that you guys are uh, also found that comedy, not like someone's like, okay, because you'll hear. Uh, I mean, a lot of people have said, like, about S.H.I.E.L.D., the TV show, just saying, oh, it's too funny, and I'm just thinking, I'm like, are you dead inside that you don't like comedy? Like, well, you, how dark is your life that you can't welcome any kind of comedy? Yeah. And I think there's definitely, with that Wolverine moment, taking him and just turning him into a child and making him the weakest aspect of the team during that arc was pretty well, hilarious. I'm sure that there were new readers that, expected him to be the best he is at what he does and and be a total badass but it's not the first time they made him a wimp i mean they yeah. they did that with the whole ex babies thing uh so um you just got to roll with it and enjoy it man yeah. but even the ways that like the 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 like the safe words almost that they have to get them out of it <laughs> is so good because like beast with the ball of string that he like entrusts to scott yeah that like if it ever gets bad i have to have this <laughs> and the 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 page in issue 17. 17 where the can of beer falls on the yes. little kid logan and the out of focus panel where he then focuses on the beer and you realize that he's back that's the colorist too, by the way, that, that pulls that yeah. off. That's that's so great. That's yeah, I remember great this. And uh, now that we're talking about issue seventeen, uh, just that whole opening. I mean, I'm sure everyone was on that same page of like, what the hell's going on here with the whole, you know, the whole baby and all that kind of stuff. And oh. and it just as confused as one is. Like, I mean, it's 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 crazy that you know you're just feeling that, even though you're just kind of. This had nothing to do with the previous issue as far as like, wait a minute, did I, did I miss a year's worth of books? Uh, right. And you probably did. That's the thing. Like, yeah. it probably was three or four months between yeah. those issues coming out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Uh, and, and for me rereading it, I should mention, I accidentally skipped 16 <laughs> when I reread it today. So I was like, what is going on? Well, I don't remember any of this. It's funny you say that because when you mentioned the whole sewer thing, I was just flipping through that issue and I somehow skipped that issue. Oh. <laughs> so Perfect. Yeah, so that's interesting. I'm gonna... Between the three of us, we have them all read. Yes. Yeah, when they, when they that's finally. Team. That's teamwork. It is. When they finally get to the break world stuff like there have been very like there have been in the past few years like having read comics for 20 years now it takes a lot like i enjoy everything that i read i wouldn't buy it if i didn't enjoy it mm -hmm. but it takes a lot to like get me to not like, read a comic that's so good that I on a Wednesday night I want to put everything else away and not read anything because I just want to, like, sit there and reflect on what I've read. Um, 
for example, um, I think it's horribly underrated, and we're going to get off the X-Men topic here for a second, but if anyone ever finds or searches out Black Panther, The Secret Invasion tie-in, it was written by Jason Aaron. I think it's 38, 39, and 40. It's just a three-issue arc. Like, it was one of those books where, like, when I read the first issue, I, like, set it down and actually called a friend to be like, you have to go to the store right now and buy this. I think Thor, the Straczynski run of Thor, I think it was issue 11 or 12, when, uh, when Thor Billy, has... Billy died, or? When Thor has the, uh, the conversation with Cap's ghost. Oh, right. Just messed me up. Uncanny X-Force number 25 is one of those. It's not issue number four is. Um... There's a part in the Break World story where I was just like, uh, you can't get, like, it was one of those things where I was like, I don't think you can get better than this moment. And it might have been heightened by the fact that there was such a gap between the issues. Like, I wouldn't want it now, but I'm, I'm happy that as frustrating as it was, the, the delays because of art in the book, I was happy that they didn't decide to have a fill-in because I miss long runs of characters where you like, get into a groove where the uh, the creators are the same, you know? Like, growing mm-hmm. up, I had a, a long time where the X-Men were Lobdell and Madriera. And you just, that, that was what it was. And so you knew it was going to be this every time around. And So, spoilers for the end. If uh, people, this could get spoilery for people that are holding out for the end of the arc and haven't read it yet. Um Maybe, maybe turn it off now. You've heard enough of us. Okay, go ahead, Sean. Okay. In the, in the, towards the end of the break world issue, when they finally figured out that the mutant who is going to destroy their planet is Colossus. There's just a ton of great, just, I, like, again, I cannot, I, I wish, as much as I'm excited for Avengers 2 and I can't wait, and I've got the countdown clock going on, there are so many great moments where, like, the X-Men are trying to bust onto the Break World planet, and so they've split up into two different groups, and they're in these little, like, ship things, and it's crazy, and the artwork is fantastic because you can actually feel them, like, you know, being Vibrating. fucking jettisoned onto this fucking thing. And, like, basically Colossus and Wolverine are joking about how terrible the others must have it because they're the tough ones and it flips to this panel where they're having a tea party because they've got Emma <laughs> in their mind so like their ride is nothing but serenity but the other ones are totally screwed and for the drinking game you just mentioned serenity for this episode so it's a drink <laughs> but yeah once once they get into the break world like that whole that's that's for me, like, it just kicks into high gear, and I love all that stuff. And uh, Which is crazy, because it kicks into high gear, but honest to God, you had to wait five months for an issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's like the fact that the prophecy was the fact that, like, Colossus was the one to destroy the planet, and everybody starts freaking out because he just slowly melts into the ground. Yeah. Because he's being phased by Kitty. The fact that Wolverine stabs armor to get her to armor up. And the way that he's burnt... Oh, like he's just yeah. totally destroyed, and he's just like it's going to take a while. Like, and he and he gives her the the pep talk, you know, of just you didn't earn the suit if you're going to wuss out now. Like, and yeah. then she picks her name. So badass, and the fact that Cyclops is out there leading the team and doing all this shit, and he doesn't have his powers. Yeah. So, 
that is when we get to... Yeah, and so for half of this whole 25-issue arc, he's not wearing goggles. Yep. That's worth mentioning. Yeah. Just so you guys know, so we can... Jerry, do you want to do the honors? Issue number 21, Jerry's comic book crush. Whoa! <laughs> Butt shot! Kitty pride. I'm, I'm not comfortable with that. The Mr. Skin of the <laughs> Great Expectations podcast. Yeah, Jerry had mentioned that about the sexuality of it and everything. And, uh, yeah, you definitely are crossing some lines there. Listen, they crossed the line a long time ago in Excalibur when, uh, Pete Wisdom had his way. Oh. That was when it was lost. That for me. never happened. I'm sorry. <laughs> that never happened. But, um, this is awesome because they, it was like, a love of a lifetime between the two of them and she lost it and that she got it back and you always wonder what that's going to be like and you get to see it play out on the page like what would it have been like if if it had really worked out if he hadn't died by saving mutants <laughs> but um you know it's awkward and and beautiful and god that, that that's my favorite part of the whole thing. I mean, the two of them getting back together is my favorite part. And the fact that they jacked that up because of the stupid AVX storyline. Yeah. I'm re- yeah. really, really bitter yep. that they haven't patched that up yet. Yeah. Well, before we get too much into Jerry's bitterness, <laughs> we're going to discuss... No, 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 it's alright, trust me, that pisses me off too, but I want to stay in the moment, this happiness we've got until the very last issue. But one of my all-time favorite moments is at the end of issue number 22, when the X-Men have the craziest conversation they've ever had. (laughs) And it was so confusing reading this, because I had no idea what was going on. I was like, they're talking kind of weird. Yeah. It's really confusing. I didn't know what Leviathan was. I went back after reading this issue, and I was like, where did I miss Leviathan? Yeah. Where did that happen? And so then at the very end, Cyclops does the most badass thing. Oh, this panel. God damn it, Jerry. (laughs) Cyclops just dies. Like, he's like, fuck you, Captain America. Cyclops is so sure of his plan. He sacrifices himself, goes out there and dies, and it's the greatest, because I have always believed that if the book was to end, okay, if X-Men was to end, no longer, like, Marvel goes bankrupt, they're no longer making comics, I think that the very final shot is from Cyclops' point of view, okay? And this is so great, because as he's floating out into space, you see, like, in the bright light, you see a gene that says, nice to meet you. And then, you see Cyclops, oh my god, to Xavier, and he says, what a future you have ahead of you. Like, such a fucking, oh. It's the Lost ending. Yeah, oh, spoilers for Lost. (laughs) Yeah. Scott Summers dies at the end of Lost. (laughs) Spoilers. Like, seriously, I I think that you could have ended X-Men... At Astonishing X-Men Giant Size number one, and I would have been like, okay, I'm okay with it. Like, I'm at peace. That's how much I love the sequence of events in these three issues. I know. You hate me right now, Jerry. I don't want it to ever end, but (laughs) I would... Okay, if this happened before the disaster that was the 90s, 
I would have said the same thing. Knowing what was about to happen, uh, I would have said, yeah, end it like this. But um, as much as I enjoy it now... I don't ever want it to end. I, well, I don't either, but I'm just saying that's how much... Uh, that's the but when it does regard. happen, I want it to happen like that. Yeah. I agree. And Cyclops gets those motherfuckers to bring him back to life, just like they did Colossus. <laughs> Sean's so angry. Oh, no, I love it, because it's one of those things where, like, every asshole that doesn't read X-Men books who's like, oh, Cyclops sucks, he's such a boring character, clearly has not read the last arc of Astonishing X-Men. Yeah. <laughs> well, don't say the last arc. Say the last arc of the Whedon run because Whedon it's run. been thoroughly ruined since then. <laughs> yeah, and I'll, I'll share my thoughts on that when we actually get to that point of the actual end of Whedon's run of where I go from here. That'll be interesting. Just like when the dude's going after Cyclops and he's like, you don't have your powers, your team isn't following your orders, like you suck. And Cyclops just no powers looks him in the eye and just says, what are you doing, trying to make me cry? <laughs> what a boss. So then, of course, the dude buys right into the thing and he screams, what is Leviathan at him? And you have everybody doing their thing. And then you have, towards the end of the book, you have Emma talking. And this is like one of those moments where I finally, this the last three, four issues of this is where I finally let some of my Emma Frost hatred go. Yeah. And you have that moment where she's talking to Cyclops telepathically, and he says, you worry too much, sweetie. And the look on the break world faces. What's that? What's the dude's name? Ward? Is that still Ward? What's the other oh, guy? Oh, the other one. Oh, I don't remember any of the other guys. Editors, note the name we were looking for was Power Lord Croon. Well, anyways, he just has that look, and he goes, you can't just have called me sweetie. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, oh, so, so then you get just the- uh, interrupting really quick because I forgot to mention this earlier on, but there was a scene um, between Emma and Kitty that I I didn't notice it when I read it the first time, and I just noticed it during this reread where Kitty's like really going after Emma early on. I think it's their first big yeah headbutting, um, and Kitty says something really nasty to Emma and Emma's got her back to her and you like it's a close up of Emma's face and you see tears well up in her eyes and that that's like the first show of humanity I can remember no. of Emma and it really kind of softened I kind softened of the character for me in this that in they this did arc. such a good job of making like Emma and Kitty kind of finally come to a point where like they understood each other a little bit more than I wish some of the things that happened later on kind of didn't happen. But this, at this point, has my favorite moment of the entire run where it's finally revealed that they were having a telepathic conversation and the telepathic conversation is hilarious. Yeah. I, <laughs> when Kitty does the I object yes, and then Wolverine says, shit, I'm going to crack up, I'm cracking up. I can't help, I've read this book like 30 <laughs> times but I can't not laugh every time I read that. Yeah, and that's amazing that I was just about to say that same part, and then that leads to, uh, 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 where was it? When they made the reference to before Kitty acts again. Yeah. When Cyclops starts walking off, you know, and you're referring back to the object, and, yeah, the comedy is just <laughs> pretty spot on. And then... 
You have the, the break world guy screaming into Cyclops, just what other lies have you told? And he's got this look on his face, and he just fucking blasts him with his optic blast. So you finally get to see after 12 issues of Scott, or 8 issues, or however long it's been of him not having his powers, you finally see his powers unleashed, just at their most maximum. Yeah. <laughs> and uh everybody can see it as though it's like the signal of what's happening. And then my favorite panel from the entire run, the most boss Cyclops moment of all time, <laughs> is when he finally gets to say it. The shift has finally happened where, like, Cyclops has finally surpassed Xavier as the true leader of the X-Men. And he says, to me, my X-Men. I fucking cheered in my house. I was so excited. Love that page. Um, yeah, definitely, uh, I'd say the issue 23, definitely one of the strongest, uh, issues of the entire run and just well like we said there's never really a dull moment at all but this is a perfect example of uh no dull moments uh, yeah and, and i like that too especially like when you said when cyclops uh finally uh unleashes the lie he's been telling and and the fact that it happens you know on the next page rather than catching in the corner of your eye and reading ahead of the panel by mistake you know Obviously, there's, there's there's a lot of cliffhanger type moments that work out pretty good, and throughout the whole series where it is the final page. Sometimes, if the ad gets in there, Dave Mira sneaks in and ruins the moment a little bit. But uh, uh, but I was glad that yeah, at least with the Cyclops having that uh, uh, having that moment was the fact that you had to turn that page to see what was going to happen next, rather than just move your eyes slightly down. You know that just helps the impact of those kind of moments. So. And everything was built perfectly. Like the, the, the amount of tension that you had was like just enough to not lose faith. Like it was that mo like, cause I remember reading the issues and uh, as they were coming out and it was just that thing where it was like, when is Cyclops going to get back his powers? It was so frustrating, you know? And then when it finally does happen, like it's such a release and so badass that it's like, okay, totally worth it. Like every frustrating moment that I had where it was like, come on, any moment now, any moment yeah. now, totally worth it. And for the, for the Whedon fan drinking game at, uh, people playing at home, you had said faith, so everybody take it. <laughs> come on. So yeah, we come up to, uh, we're on issue, uh, 24, is that right? Yeah, it's when we, when we finally see that they have not, uh, been building a missile that they're going to destroy our world with, but uh, yeah, and I just I don't know. how I much guess, of this do we want to give away? Well, I, I well, we've already scared everybody off with the spoiler yeah. warning, so we can say whatever we want. It's a giant bullet, giant bullet. The the kitty has phased into this whole thing is such a huge mind screw. They bring in all the heavy hitters of the Marvel U to save the day. And, uh, and it, you know, it looks like they're going to put their heads together and figure it out. This is how we're going to stop this bullet that's got Kitty in it. We're going to save Kitty. It's going to be great. And in their minds, everybody imagines that they've done it. But they're all just standing there. Yeah. It's such... Oh, man. When, the, when that reveal is so... Oh, and I, I gotta say, like, with going into Giant Size, astonishing number one, the fact that Joss Whedon has one more issue of his entire run, and the fact that the first page is a big splash page of Spider-Man, 
and me, I'm getting this dream of like first my first dream was uh the fact that Astonishing X Men number one had these characters I grew up with now being written by my favorite creator. Now at the end of the series I am getting basically every Mar you know, main Marvel superhero has their moments of, of Joss's words coming through and we had mentioned, you know, Nightcrawler and uh we got a Spider Man, a lot of a lot of a lot more Spidey than everything for anything else and uh some more Fantastic Four. So as uh as the Whedon fanboy, the fact that now I'm just getting all these characters, you know, just breathing these words that uh Joss has written really is a, a great way to end for me. So And Awesome heroic moments for Kitty at the end. Yeah. And for Ord. Ord gets an amazing send off at the end of this story. I, that is a really powerful scene between him and Colossus at the end. Awesome. But I mean, the story really is Kitty. Kitty's sacrifice at the end. Yeah, I mean the splash page of the, of the bullet through the city is, uh, <laughs> And everyone just fearing for their lives right there. Everyone's running and everyone else is witnessing this going on. And, uh, yeah, it's pretty, it's a great way to uh, go out, definitely. They don't know that she's got, got it in her to even pull that off. They think they're all goners. Yeah. They're kissing their asses goodbye. And, and I love the fact that that whole shot was kind of narrated as though she was already gone. Yeah. You know, and it was being told from the perspective that, yes, this already happened. And you see, Emma tearing up because she's gained so much respect for Kitty. Armor and Wolverine. Armor steps up to the plate and lets Wolverine work through some of his grief. Yeah, yeah this is awesome. I mean, this is a total role reversal. You know, Wolverine is really... Kitty, before Armor, before Jubilee, there was Kitty Pride. That was his first sidekick, you know, those two developed a special relationship, you know, and it's not the same as her relationship with Peter, but it's every bit as important to this book, and um, he's he's taken it hard that she's gone, and Armor steps up, like you said, and, and, and she punches him, <laughs> and the little sparring session goes a long way to helping him get back on his feet. And I love the fact that it ends... With Colossus kind of on the grounds, kind of staring off into the sky. Yeah. And it's the exact same yes. three panels from when Kitty saw him. You see his face. His face doesn't move. And then he touches his heart the same way that she did. Yes. I was going to, I wanted to just jump in there and start saying that, but since you had uh, brought perfect uh, description of that earlier, I was uh, very excited to uh, hear you bring that mention, so... So good. And then as we uh, we get through, at least in the issue here, we have our cover gallery, and I guess we haven't, uh, I guess, a bunch of great covers, at least for me. You know, this is the first, this is the first full series of me collecting after 10 years of not uh, reading comics, and I'm buying as uh, many covers. You know, I got a lot. I have almost all of them. You know, I'm getting the variant covers and all that kind of stuff, but... Uh, um, going through, you know, issue one, simply with the, with the glare off the claws, like a favorite, and issue three, uh, Wolverine, that I got signed by John Cassidy, that I'd mentioned earlier, uh, your issue six, you got your, uh, Kitty and Colossus, uh, 
passionately, you know, your romance novel cover in a way. Yeah, that one's really cool too because there's a really subtle detail where her arm that's up over his neck yeah. has oh. phased through her arm, oh. his arm. Yeah, never, never noticed that. Very cool, yeah. My favorite's 22 and 23. Yeah. 23 is so weird. It's like a, a Jeff Darrow cover or something. There's so much detail there, and it's completely different from anything else he does in the whole series. But it's just Wolverine on top of a pile of alien, dead alien guys. Awesome. And I guess my very favorite cover out of all of them, and it actually is one of the variant editions, but uh, for issue uh, 24 with Kitty and... Uh, Lockheed. Uh, yeah. That's, I, I just love the colors. I'm a big, uh, purple and yellow fan, so having that entire, uh, uh, cover be purple and yellow for, uh, Kitty and Lockheed, uh, really, that, that one takes the cake. That's my favorite out of all the covers. And, I pick a um, I had mentioned then, you know, this is the end of Joss Whedon's run, 25 issues, including the giant size. And here I am knowing that, you know, the next issue was going to be a different team. I'm buying it because, like, well, I'm definitely loving a Smashing Axemen. And my opinions could change ten years later now that I've just become an insane reader compared to what I was ten years ago, uh, where comic books have taken over uh, TV shows, where as many TV shows I used, I used to watch are just nothing anymore, where I'm like, you know what? Like, nothing against Breaking Bad. Sean, you watch Breaking Bad, right? Yep. Nothing against that, but that's something I haven't watched. And I've I've said to people, they're like, oh, you haven't watched Breaking Bad? I'm like, if it was a comic book, I'm sure I would have read every issue of Breaking Bad. <laughs> right? It, it, that's my mindset right now. And so now I'll bring it back to uh, Warren Ellis taking over. Um, I read it, and I didn't know what the hell was going on. Astonishing X-Men to me ended with giant size Astonishing X-Men. There were parts of the Marjorie, Marjorie Lou run at the end that I liked, but nothing, I feel bad for anybody who had to take over. And unfortunately yeah. the Ellis run had the unfortunate mishap of kind of really messing up one of my, uh, I, I, I've got a soft spot for Forge. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and Ellis just did a number on that character and it was just, Having these first, tw- basically, so we can stop with the giant size, basically the first 25 issues of Astonishing X-Men being all Whedon and Cassidy, it was such a love letter and held everything in such reverence that Ellis kind of pulled another Morrison where it was just like, ah, I'm going to come in, do kind of my own thing. I, Ellis, unfortunately, is one of those creators who kind of, um, I, I respect what he's done for the medium, but he's not really my cup of tea because, you know... Um, Kind of one of those guys that like shit talks comics a little bit, like superhero comics, but then will swoop in for the check. Mm-hmm. And it's just kind of one of those things where it's like, I don't know, you can edit this part out, Jerry. <laughs> well, I mean, I feel like there have been times where he has not been good, but I think he has done some of the best comic book writing, for, even for Marvel. I, so, yeah, I really wish that, that his run on Astonishing had never happened. Because I thought it was terrible. And I think, too, another maybe another one of the things that... that I don't want to say that I dislike his... Because there was some stuff that he did with Secret Avengers. And obviously, um, you know, due to limited budget and things like that, and knowing what I like, I don't really that often. I read some indie stuff, but I don't branch out too much. So I know that people could, I'm sure, recommend me multiple things that I just... Stormwatch. 
but I'll never get to it because I'd rather read Astonishing X-Men again. And I know that drives people nuts or whatever, but it's how I am and it's what I like. So, um, Fair enough. However, there haven't been enough. And there's so many, like, it's one of those things where it's like I tend to, when I like something, it's just like, yeah, I dig this. But I don't think I've ever forced a comic on anyone or demanded that they read something. And I see a lot of... Um, hyperbole about certain creators uh, you know Moon Knight number one came out yesterday and all I saw yesterday was just oh my god it's the greatest thing ever and, and um, I, I tend to uh, allow myself I don't know I'm going to go off on a tangent here that will eventually ask you to cut so I might as well just I think that the, uh, amongst some comic book fans there tends to be a f- if a few people start to say that something's really good and it snowballs, people almost feel the need to not disagree for fear of, um, you know, comic book reading had such a stigma years ago. And I think a lot of people haven't let go and realized that, like, some of the number one TV shows on the air are based on comic stuff. The top grossing movies every year are based on comic books. It's like it's no longer uncool to like any of this stuff. But I think there's still that, like, well, now that it's not hip to like this stuff, I'm now going to go find this other thing that is, and I'm going to be really kind of, like, territorial about it. And I've just never, that's never been my bag. You know, and I think some characters, I think that Warren Ellis kind of has that, not him particularly, but maybe some of his fan base is very much like, you either love everything he does, or you're just too dumb to get it. And maybe. And speaking of Warren Ellis and another Joss Whedon fun fact is that Joss Whedon and Warren Ellis have co-written uh, a web series called Wastelanders that got sidetracked because Joss got the job on that A movie and <laughs> and he fell into the A hole is what you're saying. <laughs> yes. And Wastelanders is described as a as sort of a funny, horrible story about the end of the world. And after, uh, you know, once he had gotten that job for Avengers, and Opa said it, and then a to, uh, the editing will correct that. Uh, no, I'll leave that in. I want to love it. Just bleep it. Yeah. So I am super excited for me, like, coming out of Ascension X-Men and not caring for Warren Ellis, uh, the takeover of it just... Like, to me, I was feeling like, oh, I must just be a Joss Whedon snob that I, like, oh, this ain't Joss, so I'm not reading it. But, you know, it felt more comforting comforting to know that you two kind of felt that same way, whereas it doesn't eliminate my interest for the guy, because when I hear that Warren Ellis is co-writing a, a web series with Joss Whedon, I'm 100% on board, and it makes me a big Warren Ellis fan, just because it's it's probably most likely going to be something that I'm going to like, and... uh I guess that's kind of an interesting connecting that uh, one had taken over for the other and one thing, and now they're 10 years, and, well, probably be later now with this movie, are going to be coming back, you know, to work on something together. So, mm-hmm. so I don't know, Ant. Um, I guess uh, this maybe you should probably... Maybe the Jerry Springer final thoughts. Yeah, final thoughts. Pimp your things, which you'll be doing until August 1st when you die of a heart attack from seeing Guardians of the Galaxy, because I know how excited you are about that. <laughs> yeah, because after that, you know, unfortunately I'm not even going to be able to see that movie that 
Joss Whedon is doing. Um, so yeah, uh, my love for comic books is definitely has been uh, relit by Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men. Thank you, Joss, and thank you, John Cassidy and Laura Martin and everybody that listens to this podcast. Um, <laughs> they, they, we never thank them, so thanks for doing our work for exactly, us. Exactly, yeah. I mean, this is my 116th podcast, um, 117th if uh, Eric... Oh, we did the best we could to make it 117 tonight. <laughs> <laughs> we did. There's still time. I have faith in you, uh, Jerry. So... Uh, because of this book that we just spent a lot of time talking about, uh, brought me into comics where I'm now, you know, subscribing to 32 titles and it just keeps growing and everything else just gets put to the wayside because I'd much rather, uh, read comic books and more X-Men stories are definitely, but I'm branching out and it's mostly Marvel, but I do do a lot of independent stuff, but it's, uh, basically the astonishing has brought me back into, uh, uh, a fandom, a hobby that I had once loved and and quickly thrown away when I just got lazy and didn't want to read any more one. In a world where TV shows that are canceled are now being turned into com- continuing comic books and movie sequels like the Super Mario Brothers movie now being turned into Super Mario Brothers 2 as a comic book, all of these things that I am now wishing could just be turned into comic books are happening, and that's how much I love comics. And if you want to hear more about that, there's other ways to find that out. So here's my plugs. Uh, I do an AB Conversation podcast, AB Conversation on iTunes with my buddy Brent Strasberg, a weekly podcast that we are four weeks away from celebrating our 100th episode. And hey. yes, and uh, we talk about movies, television, comic books, something that you listeners here uh, might enjoy, uh, video games, food. And we deliver the news. We keep spoiler-free reviews of the new movies we see. We add in some humor, have a lot of fun, basically an hour and a half every single week. And then I have a spinoff podcast called The Anton Podcast, Anton. Uh, a lot of people call me Anton, so I figured why not split it up and now Ant is on anything and everything. So that's just a spinoff podcast whenever I feel the need to sit down with a friend or talk about so that uh, in detail rather than being in the structure of all these different mediums. So those are two ways to find me through iTunes at Anthony Latch on Twitter. Anthony spelled the traditional way and then Latch is L-A-A-T-S-C-H. And uh, because of the comic books have uh, become a forefront of my uh, obsession I have also put something else on the back burner of a 10-year history of filmmaking, uh, short films, web series, uh, that you can find at bartonheights.4t.com. And there's something, uh, a little bit of something for everybody from comedy to horror and superheroes, something called Strike Girl. Strike Girl with a Y because it's hip. Um, but, but, uh, but I kept the eye and, uh, for girls. So, but anyways, uh, you can see some of my comic book love come out from making a low budget, fun comic book comedy, uh, superhero movie. All of that stuff is there, but now I have scripts on things that I have since put the filmmaking on hold because now I'm looking at these scripts that never got made thinking, Budget-wise, too many people. I cannot get all these people together as people grow up and have lives. I am now adapting some of those stories into comic book formats, and I'm reaching out to artists that I find online that have uh, the passion 
to just draw and not make money out of it. And I have a couple titles. Oh, I'm sure they're lining up. Oh, I, I have one person that feels that, that has that passion of drawing and, uh, she is helping making a dream come true. So I have a couple projects, things that I used to make in film now because I love comic books so much. Thanks to Joss Queen's Extinguishing X-Men. I am now finding ways to, uh, make a long time dream come true as far as making my own comic books and I've got a couple things on the burners out there thank you Joss Whedon for bringing me back into this world that I didn't know that I would eventually miss and wish that I could uh, you know I'm making up for lost time now basically so yeah I well I definitely appreciate your enthusiasm sometimes you know in, in the in the negative world of Twitter you are my beacon of <laughs> light your light has given me a phasing orgasm. <laughs> and that's all I'm really trying to do out there. And uh, and no matter how many mojitos it takes for you to experience that, Jerry, I'm, I'm glad to be a participant in that act of uh, um, disgustingness. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> it was a beautiful moment. It wasn't disgusting. Yeah, yeah, well, tomato, potato. Um, so yeah, I guess that's just kind of, that's my final thoughts. I thank you guys for having me on here because it got me to just talk about this and this only. Normally I'm on a structure of being like, all right, I've got 15 minutes. I got to switch over to this segment. It felt good to actually sit back and get some questions answered that I didn't know. Uh, talk to two guys. I enjoy listening to both of you. I've listened to every episode and there's a lot of things I don't understand, but I listen to everything and it just, uh, what's most appealing uh, it's not the subject matter that brings you two together to do the podcast is the fact that you guys are just sharing your love for that something. So I don't think a person has to understand what we're talking about to understand the passion that you guys bring with talking about it together and allowing us to, uh, basically sit in the corner and, uh, listen and, and I, so I thank you for having that podcast and having me on. So. Wow. Oh, thanks, Thank man. You. you make us sound a lot more important than we really yeah. are. You're going to make me tear up like I did when I read Colossus coming back. I wish you could see us holding hands right yep. now because we're, we're having a moment. You know, every, pants, always pantsless. Every episode I listen to, you guys are holding hands and pantless. So it's <laughs> it, it feels like, you know, now I'm the creep that's sitting in the corner watching this happen. So. <laughs> Awesome. Oh, thank you for making the joke I wanted to so Basically bad. saying your podcast has made me a, a, a horrible criminal person that I didn't want to be. Well, Insert Mr. Miyagi sounds. <laughs> Our job is done. <laughs> so, yeah, that's my final thoughts. Oh, Anthony, thank you for coming on. Thank you. It is a delight. Now, I think you should sign us off uh, with the uh, traditional what can only be the only way that you end the podcast. But before you do, I just want to quickly apologize that you chose a subject that Sean was so passionate about. Because normally he would have just sat there quietly and let you do all the talking, but he was really feeling this one. Yeah. I'm, yeah. So sorry you had to share. Well, I, <laughs> I'm sorry. I was glad because I've been sharing with myself uh, for the past 10 years. Oh. <laughs> uh, um, so it felt good to have two other people uh, experience that with me. Oh, yeah. Well, we were happy to experience yeah, it with this you. This was the devil's three-way of astonishing <laughs> X-Men. So also, I should, uh, before we pack it up here, I should also... We don't want to go. I know. I have to, though. i got to pick up Ashley from work. Josh Whedon. I want to thank him 
for introducing me to Christina Hendricks. Hey. Oh. Because I've seen up to that episode Yosef. in Firefly. Yep. And I was like, whoa. You know she, comes, you know she comes back. Holy shit. Now I've got incentive oh, yeah, to, just, to finish that series. Yeah, the only tease, uh, she gets a nickname of Yosef Bridge. So I'll just leave it at that, so. <laughs> I don't know what that means. And you're going to flip out once. It, I'm going to get a tweet once you do figure out what that means, so. Take it away. Send us out. I think that you should end it, and you can cut this part, but you should end it by saying, tell him, Jerry Mc... Um, I've been Anthony, and I'll see you between the panels. Credit goes to James Gunn, the movie Super. He wrote that. And tell him, Jerry McDade. That'll do it for another episode. Goodbye. What you done I told you about all those fears and the way they did run you sure must be strong and you feel like an ocean made warm by the sun when I was just nine years old I swear that I dreamt on a football field and a kiss that I kept under my vest apart from everything the heart in my chest I know that things can really get rough when you go in love don't go thinking
Did you bring your feels? I've got all my feels in lined in a row with the ducks, so we're, we're I think I'm ready to go. Ducks and feels. This is going to be our best hod yet. Okay, let me do that too. I gotta yeah, warm up the hands. We're Mr. Miyagiing <laughs> over here. All right, that's not what it sounds like. <laughs> He doesn't have video. <laughs> I see a mojito and I hear rubbing. That's all I... <laughs> That's going to be our stinger. <laughs> oh, this is going to be the best one ever. All right, let's do this. Okay.